listeners, you are tuned into CJSR FM 88.5, and this is Moving Radio. I'm your host, Christian Zip, and join me, please, won't you, for the next one hour as we take a look at, of course, what else would it be? It's the end of a year. It's got to be the best of the year. The best of 2022 on Moving Radio. Whoa, what a year. I mean, we went to a ton of movies. Uh, Our favorite festivals, of course, uh, the Calgary Underground Film Festival, uh, Calgary Underground Film Festival, Docs, Cuff Docs, the Edmonton International Film Festival, Northwest Fest, the very first and inaugural Northwest Fear Fest, Rainbow Visions, Fava Fest. There's so much going on. It's uh, it was an exciting year. That's for sure. And we gave you tons of coverage of not only uh, films that you can find that are locally based, but also some things that are internationally based. So what we're going to give you is a little sample of not every single person we talked to this year because it would take far more than an hour to do that. But we're going to give you a little sample of some of our favorites that are Alberta-centric and beyond and maybe some more uh, amazing experiences for us to talk to these directors. So stay tuned for the next one hour and hopefully what will happen is that maybe you will find a gem or two of a film that you can either stream online for free or maybe for a small price uh, that you didn't get to check out earlier this year. And you know what? Then we've done our job as Moving Radio. We've illuminated you to the best in international, local, and independent cinema. So, strap in, because for the next one hour, it's the best of 2022 in the world of moving radio. With me, your host, Christian Zip. First up, we give you a bit of a segment of an interview from director Gary Snow when we talked to him back when his film was uh, screening in Calgary as part of Cuff. And what we talked about was his documentary film, Friendly Local Game Store. It's all about a place in Calgary called The Century. It's pretty amazing uh, if you like games and whatnot. Uh, Very incredible the amount of stuff that they have, but also just the community that they've accumulated and curated uh, in order to make it such an incredible place to go, to be, to hang out. So here's a little taste of our interview from Friendly Local Game Store. And if you are interested in this film right now, all you gotta do is put in Friendly Local Game Store streaming or maybe just Friendly Local Local Game Store on YouTube and you can check out the one hour version of this documentary for absolutely nothing. That's right. Go check it out on YouTube. But before you do that, here's a segment of our interview with director so, Gary Snow. Gary, you know what gave you the idea that you saw that there was a film there uh, within this store, an origin story, if you will, uh, within the Century Box in Calgary? Yeah, well, I moved to Calgary in 2013, and I was unaware of the Century Box. And I randomly... Uh, discovered it on a walk and uh, for me I grew up as a Dungeons and Dragons nerd uh, my whole life so I saw the dragon on the outside of the building and I was immediately intrigued and I went well what is this and uh, so I went to explore and as some of the documentary captures like when you go in there you are absolutely blown away it is a mecca of being a game store and I couldn't believe that I had lived in uh, Calgary for 
you know, probably a year at that time. And I didn't even know what it existed. And so when I saw it, I, I went, this is just unbelievable. And I kind of cataloged that in my mind that there's got to be some really good story as to why Calgary has such a, an amazing game store. Yeah. I mean, I, I had a brief encounter with it one time when I was in Calgary. Um, I don't get down there as much as I probably should. And so I was aware of it, but I never really considered that idea. Like I was kind of in awe of all of it. It's almost so much to take in. Like the store and the film does service it to give it as being incredible, um, you know, immersive experience for anybody that hasn't been there before. So, I mean, there is kind of a cinematic element to just the way that you you know the store has been designed decorated and housed and just the way it looks but i think probably even more central to it is this kind of idea of community and that stores like the century box and and similar other ones whether whatever they cater to as an audience uh creates a sense of community so maybe both of you discuss uh gordon from you being in the inside of it creating it and gary for you as being kind of the observer from the outside talks just about how community is this incredibly important thematic theme line throughout the film friendly game store oh, sorry friendly local game store um well when we moved into this location um 27 years ago now it was basically brick walls cement floor and uh, a tin roof uh, some of the pictures that gary shows in the documentary really kind of highlight what we had to do to make it what it was um, and even then it was pretty bare walls and stuff it was just big and over the years we've added the decor but when I we kind of had to lay out the whole design of it and one of the things that was always important to me was that our mezzanine area was basically designed for people to play games we had a separate back room in there uh, we always called it the after hours room because clubs could meet there and it has separate exit and its own bathroom um, and so it was always kind of integral to the design. I did not expect it to go quite as crazy as it has over the last few years with the whole um, gaming culture. Um, and it's proved its worth. We actually had to extend our hours just to allow people more time to play the games up there. It got so crowded on some days and nights. And then uh, I, I guess for me, the community part of it is like one of the key factors of the documentary. I mean, the, the story is amazing. The community that's grown around the store is amazing, but I also wanted to cover the why are, why games are such an important topic or hobby for a lot of different people, and uh, so I wanted to delve into that. And you could see just the love and passion that people bring to their hobbies, and how people from different backgrounds could come together for you know it doesn't matter where you're from, uh, your your background, your ethnicity. Uh, you know what languages you speak when you come to the the table and you play a game it's a it's a common activity that everybody can do together and it it builds relationships and those relationships just extend beyond that gaming table to the broader community and i think gord's done a fantastic job building that community around the sentry box over you know 40 plus years and you can you know just interviewing all the different uh, subjects in the documentary you can just see the love of that community throughout every interview. All right. One of the people that I was really fascinated with who has, you know, a bit of their fingerprints on the store as well is designer uh, Cam Lorian, who also kind of 
you know, created some of the things that make, you know, as much as the people makes the place come alive, I feel like Cam is one of those elements that help make the walls come alive. Talk yeah. just a little bit about that visual impact of the store, Gordon, and maybe for you, how, Gary, how you felt like that was a really important element to discuss in the film. Well, it was, it was funny, actually, because it all started with Cam approaching me eight years ago because uh, he'd been working for us since he was what 16 or something 17 and uh he had an idea he said i did this for a house and he had this egyptian themed you know with the hieroglyphics and all that and i think it would look cool if we did something up there and i must have been in a good mood or been feeling kind of flush that day uh because i said okay let's give it a shot and we kind of started with the you know i don't know 40 feet of wall up on the, the one section there. And it kind of just went from there. I mean, it looked cool. It had nothing to do with what uh, we sell or anything, maybe one or two games with an Egyptian theme, but it was just kind of cool uh, to do it. And he had staff up their names, you know, in hieroglyphics and weird things like that. My daughters are the girls sitting on the thrones, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, there's even a TIE fighter and a Death Star kind of hidden in one corner if you have to look for it. So it, it's kind of, and just from there, it's like, oh, that worked. Let's try this. And we just kind of fiddled around with it over the years. And it was good for him because it led to other jobs for him, which he charges a lot more than I will pay him for this. But um, the funniest thing I think about it is that it's people want to have, you know, it feels like they have a piece of the store this way. Uh, and it's just... It's, it's not just Cam, it's other people who have done different things. It's cool to have something in there, you know, whether it's painted miniatures or whatever. It's a little hard to get used to, you know, I just think of it as the store and it's uh, not a big deal, even though I'm a gamer myself and have been for all these years. Um, but I've come to accept that it means as much to many of my customers as it does to me. That's why I can't retire. Earlier this year, I spoke with Joe Hunting and several of the people featured as part of the documentary film We Met in Virtual Reality. Filmed entirely inside the world of VR, it's a look at the exciting and surprising intimacy of a burgeoning cultural movement demonstrating the power of online connection in an isolated world. You can find the film actually in Canada on Crave right now, uh, so you can stream it there, or you can also find it, of course, in the U.S. on HBO+. Plus. Um, that's one of the values that you can get it. I mean, you can pretty much get it on every other streaming service, but if you have to have those subscriptions, that's where you can find it. So here's a little bit of our interview with the director of We Met in Virtual Reality. The film was featured as part of Cuff earlier this year, and uh, we were lucky enough to get to talk to him uh, before uh, everybody had a chance to see this film outside of the festival circuit. Here's a piece of my interview with Joe Hunting and members of the cast of We Met in Virtual Reality. Making friends here is sometimes what saves people's lives. Or what gets them up out of bed in the morning. 
I am a teacher for Helping Hands, a sign language community here in VR chat. Hand rested under our elbow, and we're gonna go like this. Christmas. Slow, quick, quick, slow. If I had confidence that I could teach dance as a living in VR, I totally would do exactly that. With a long distance relationship, having VR is a game changer. We are 5,000 miles apart, but we're gonna try our best to make it work. This year has been really hard. The thing that has kept me sane has been VR and the VR community. I would not have weathered this without you guys. Three, two, one, happy new year! The importance of combating the isolation uh, is really what drives this film, right? And, and all these people in it. So maybe talk to us a little bit about the importance of that element in the film with your focus mm-hmm. on the uh, on Jenny and Ray and the Helping's Hands organization uh, through the VRC community. Oh, absolutely. The real inspiration to make the documentary, I think, came when COVID occurred and the pandemic happened and the world went into lockdown. I think that made me drop my bags and decide that there was a real genuine purpose for this documentary to exist. And the first person in the first community that I filmed with in sharing how we can come together and use VR for a really common good reason and to educate and forge community was Helping Hands. And I met Jenny in the May, May of 2020, so a lot early on um, in, in my process, and seeing her dedication to teach sign language in VR and to forge like a new language with the different VR controllers and work with deaf and hard of hearing people all inside VR is just fascinating. I don't know how anyone else could not find that fascinating um, in terms of the technology, but also in terms of worldwide connection. So immediately we started filming together during the pandemic and, you know, became very close friends and we worked together for a year. I was filming Jenny's classes and with Ray as well. Um, Ray is also a deaf ASL teacher in the Helping Hands community and working with them on sharing their story and highlighting the deaf experience. The film represents many different emotional themes from the deaf experience to mental health and relationships and the LGBT um, non-binary experience as well. And to me, all of those representations were really what drove me to make the film and wanting to not only talk about the technology, but talk about how this technology is being pioneered by people who or maybe marginalized and underrepresented in general media. Um, and as the internet was when the internet was first existing as well. Um, yeah, so the, the Helping Hands community is a very strong and very inspiring community in terms of education and representing that was extremely important to me. You know, what's intriguing is something that you said, Joe, about the film we met in virtual reality is that uh, it's as organic and as real and as grounded as real life. So from the outside, that's something we kind of discussed about before. Where it just may seem like for some people that are unfamiliar with this and that, you know, in seeing the film, they're like completely illuminated by like this exists. Um, that may seem contradictory to them. Right. But 
I think that the film does an excellent job of combating that. So this is more directed towards Scout, Dylan, and John as subjects of the film. Can you talk about the layered experience of this, of operating and connecting with people in this VRC world? And then knowing that at the same time, it's all going to be filmed for a documentary when really this is about making those personal connections and kind of having, you know, at times it's really intimate kind of conversations about where you're at and how you feel. So what that's been like to know that there was like, yes, we are the avatars and us, then we have these relationships we're forging. And on top of all that, we're being filmed and then it's going to be presented to a larger audience and what that's been like to share that with audiences. Yeah, I can, I can speak to that briefly. I think what's really wonderful is that um, I think we had a lot of trust in Joe's um, filmmaking um, expertise and ability to really show the, the best parts of people. Um, and, and so I, I personally, I didn't have any fears about going into the documentary process. We were very comfortable with Joe. Um, and so that was a really nice thing to have. And I think Dylan and I have a bit of a unique experience in that I don't think that people picture people in VR being in the same room. Um, I think it's often thought of as something, you know, you do in isolation. And, and if there's, you, you wouldn't necessarily have two people in the same room in VR at the same time. Um, and so that's always interesting for us. Um, even though, you know, we, during the pandemic, we were sharing our house and, and we had, you know, that kind of our, our, you know, companionship and everything. It was still really wonderful to go into VR and spend time with other people. Once again, you can find We Met in Virtual Reality on Crave streaming in Canada or on HBO Max in the US and pretty much any other streaming platform you want to check out Cinema Odd. Another exciting interview we had this year that I was uh, really stoked that we got and I thought was a big get was none other than Riley Stearns. Uh, he had directed the film The Art of Self-Defense with Jesse Eisenberg and this year his film Duel opened up Cuff 2022. Uh, so we were very lucky that Cuff hooked us up to talk with him because that film debuted at the festival was the opening night film. In the film Duel, upon receiving a terminal diagnosis, Sarah opts for a cloning procedure to ease her loss in her friends and family. And when she makes a sudden and miraculous recovery, her attempts to decommission her clone fail, leading to a court-mandated duel to the death. Now, she has one year to train her mind and body for the fight of her life. Duel starred Karen Gillian, also Aaron Paul, and of course, favorite of Riley Stearns, Jesse Eisenberg. Here's a uh, segment of our conversation with Jesse Eisenberg about the film Duel, which you can find also on Crave TV here in Canada, HBO Max in the US, and pretty much any other streaming platform you like. But life has thrown you a curveball. You're not dying anymore. The duel to the death will be in approximately one year. Wait, did you say duel to the death? You can't have two of you walking around forever. That'd be ridiculous. Do you want to live? Yes. Maybe a size smaller than you. I'm going to kill her. 
a properly trained human Let's body Let's talk about is, the character however, Sarah Moe, specifically played by Karen Gillan, uh, who seems like socially, physically, mentally numb at this point, kind of almost from the immediate outset of the film, even in the first scene. You know, like even when the people around her should value her the most in her final days, it seems like that's not even happening, right? It's it's like they start to gravitate towards the clone. So what kind of conversations do you and Karen have about playing this character of Sarah um, feeling disconnected that kind of contrasts with this idea of an, an outsider that's desperate to please, which is a clone, and her who's almost kind of feeling like, uh, aren't we going to enjoy our last moments with me? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's uh, with Karen, it really became this conversation of complacency, just like when you feel comfortable in life and you don't have that, that drive to uh, better yourself or, or, or take action and actually, uh, um, I guess, move forward uh, in some way, shape or form. When you feel like you're just fine where you are, that, that can be a dangerous thing. So we had conversations about that and then how that would relate to Sarah. And in this world, like you kind of alluded to, the dialogue is stylized in the sense that people say things to each other in a very direct way. It's not really like you don't sugarcoat anything. And uh, similarly, when people say things to you in that way, it's not like you're taking offense to it. You just say, oh, that's how they feel. And so when Sarah's in her sort of hours the before she thinks she's going to die and and uh, it should be that time where in our world people would take the moment to say wait maybe even if I do have like feelings about your clone and, and I think I, I like them better or whatever in our world they would they would kind of look past those and and still console and and be there for that that a, a real person that real uh, the, the the original um, but in this world again going with the matter of fact nature of everything they're like, well, I like this person better. So I am going to be around this person. And thank you for making this person for me. I, I think that, like you said, it's not necessarily going to be everyone's cup of tea in the way that uh, the dialogue or the story progresses. But it's something that was incredibly interesting to me because you're taking human emotions and human connections, but you're looking at them from a completely different perspective. Yeah, it also felt like there was uh this is maybe one of the last things that you have control of somehow is maybe for Sarah's character looking at it as like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to do maybe what seems like a selfless act, although very expensive. And, and that's kind of the funny part too, right? Yeah. <laughs> is that she's like, oh, I'm going to give this to people, right? So then maybe there's this lasting memory of me, but in so many different ways, um, that replacement, like it almost kind of erases her more than yeah. necessarily replaces her. So I found like, I thought that was one of the more intriguing layers of it is that, you know, you want to project maybe who, what you're the best you is at this point. And that's what people do if they remember you at a funeral. But this almost just kind of like, like gets rid of you and puts this like slightly different version of you in place. Um, is that like almost kind of I don't know, is that a fear we have of being forgotten? And maybe that's where you were coming from of like, you know, once you're gone, no one remembers really who you are. They just project who you are. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a great point. And, and I guess I've, I've thought of it pseudo in that way, but I really like the way that you put it. It's it's like you're, you're creating this lasting memory of yourself, but it's a living, breathing, growing human being who's going to become a different person. So if, in a sense, it erases you. And that's uh, that, that fear of being forgotten is explored in a, in a, mon a specific monologue in the, in the film too, when the doctor 
tells Sarah that she is going to be dying. And Sarah says, well, what are my options? She's not saying like, like, what are my death options? Like, what, what do I, what am I going to do past my death? She's saying like, how do I fix this? And the doctor literally tells her, well, no, you, you're going to have to decide now what funeral you want. And, and I think that the doctor's answer of if, if she was to uh, uh, die, like how would she want to be remembered? She wants to be buried because people are forced to remember her that way. Like they're forced to visit you. I, I think that that's something that is, is explored sort of like more below the surface throughout the film, but it's definitely something that I think we can all relate to. Like if you, if you were to die today, what would people remember you by? And in this world, they're remembering you by a new version of you. And is that really you? I, I love what that what that entails and the philosophical questions that it, it raises. Yeah, one of the other things that I find interesting, Riley, about you know the work that you do is particularly with Duel here. It seems like there's almost kind of and I don't know if you're consciously doing it, but almost a style uh, that comes through. And I don't know if it's the writing influencing it, because I feel like there are some people that are such very specific writers that you end up watching their films and the actors almost kind of cater to what the script is. And it's not that it puts them in a corner. It just gives them a very specific world to live in. And with For Yourself, it yes, it's quirky at times, but especially with this film, I felt... Uh, there's almost kind of this like there's the story but it feels like some of the warmth is sucked out of it in some ways and not that it's lifeless just that it's like this cold variation of reality can you talk to me a little bit about maybe do you come from that place uh as being wanting a specific tone in the way that actors are performing or do you look at this as like that's just bleeding through the script and they're just kind of giving me what they're feeling they're interpreting from it yeah, they definitely are, are feeding off of what I'm giving them. Like, the, obviously, the script influences it, and I'm not telling them literally on day one how to perform everything. But at a certain point, if, if a line isn't working in the way that somebody is saying it, I'm going to be pretty upfront about the fact that it needs to be a specific way to work in the context of the entire movie. So there are times where Karen or Aaron or Beulah will come in and they'll deliver a line in a way that I'm not expecting. And that's really good. I'm like, oh, that works way better than I intended. But if there's ever a moment that I feel like it's not in line with where it needs to be, I have no issues just saying, hey, might try it this way because that's I, because of this, this or this. And uh, I think that that takes real trust on the actor's end to say, even though they're way better at what they do than I am, uh, and maybe even what I do, uh, they are able to say, he, he's got the overall tone that he's got to balance and, and do the tightrope with. And so that trust is there. And then to the point where there are times where they'll literally ask for a line reading. And I always preface this with actors when I start working with them. If, if I give a line reading, it's gonna be the bad version, but they're able to take that and then do their really good actory thing and make it the good version. That's Riley Stearns, writer-director of the film Duel, not the Steven Spielberg one, Duel from 2022. Uh, really interesting film, a lot of different levels. Maybe I guess kind of like futuristic, dystopian, dark comedy. And you can find it pretty much any cable subscription you have. Um, Telus, Shaw, you can get it on demand. Uh, you can find it on Apple. Amazon, Google Play, all those things. It's pretty much everywhere. Um, all it costs you is a small rental price. 
totally worth your while. Another film that was really interesting that we had come up in 2022 was the premiere of Northwest Fest. And it was a little documentary called Who You Gonna Call? which was a doc all about the life and times of Ray Parker Jr., who is so much more than just the guy who wrote Ghostbusters. Uh, amazing musician who had a band called Radio, which then they shifted to Ray Parker and Radio. Incredible session player. You will watch us and be stunned by some of the songs he's played on, uh, specifically Stevie Wonder, probably in the height of his creative career. Uh, called upon Ray to be in his band and so just a really fascinating individual uh, the director Fran Strine uh, did a film that played at Northwest Fest and you might have seen before called Hired Gun and that's where he'd met Ray so here's a little segment of our interview with the fantastic documentary Who Are You Gonna Call? all about the life and times of Ray Parker Jr. None of us have ever heard since kid playing guitar and he says i like the way you play can you play with the big boy i'm 15 years old playing with marvin Gaye, Smokey robinson the temptations and gladys knight he started playing it and he was good i was i was really i was shocked i said steve you gotta hear his guitars is this ray parker jr this is stevie wonder first thing you think this is my friends are playing a prank come on stevie what calling me i took the phone and hung it up click I called him back and said, hey, this is Stevie, not playing. You hang up on me again, you get punched out. For you, Ray, maybe what influence Virginia Park and Detroit in general had for you in creating your music and, and the man you became? Well, in my neighborhood, we weren't really able to play sports that much because there was a lot of police violence and a lot of just regular violence. So we didn't really want to come out of the house that much and walk too far around. So that left everybody in my area excited about playing music. And I mean, on my street where I lived in a two family flat home, somebody upstairs, my neighbor upstairs played the drums. My friend down the street played the bass. My friend next door to me played the drums. Another friend down the street played the trumpet. The one across the street played the bass and the one across the street from him played the piano all in the same block. And it didn't hurt that Motown was only about 12 blocks away that you could walk to if you had to get to it. So we, so the neighborhood in Detroit, even though it was a factory town and a car town, it was really a musical town at the same time. And so I took up music as a hobby, never once thinking I could do it for a living. I thought I had to get a real job and get an ed education like my father said. But as it turned out, uh, music was such a, a, a good influence on my life and I enjoyed it so much. And I feel so blessed and fortunate to have been able to make a living just playing the guitar. So. It's a wonderful thing. Yeah, I, you know, you're very humble and you kind of minimize like what that is and and just not only proficiency of the instrument, but your ability to songwrite. Uh, I, I feel like it's just, it's gotta be something that was like either osmosis and you're just soaking it up or uh, maybe it's just drive, right? And there's something in you. Did you feel like it was the area you grew up in and maybe it's being surrounded by all that, all that incredible music? Or did you kind of feel like it was just a personal kind of thing for you that drove you towards writing those songs and, and maybe a feeling that you had, some inspiration you had? Well, first of all, Stevie Wonder taught me how to write songs. So I went to a wonderful college. I call it Wonder University. And I worked with Holland Dozier Holland and Smokey Robinson, some of the greatest songwriters of the world. I never thought I'd be a songwriter, 
But I thought to myself, well, you know, you're working with Marvin Gaye and all of the great writers of the world. Can't you get just a little bit from them? I did you learn, you should have learned a little bit sitting in the studio working with them all that time. And sure enough, a few years later, I started to write my own hit songs, you know, which will. But all of my songs are influenced from all the people that I worked with, all the tricks I learned from them. Yeah, and uh, let's throw it back to uh, Fran as well there. So Fran, we were just talking a little bit about, you know, um, what maybe you thought was the significance of, uh, you know, Ray's beginnings in Detroit, growing up in Virginia Park. How do you think that kind of, because it's his beginning, how do you think that helped shape the film for you? Well, you know, we, we wound up making a trip to Detroit and in the wintertime, it was freezing. I'll never forget that. And, uh, you know, we took a walk down, yeah, we took a walk down memory lane to have Ray just tell his story about what he saw in Virginia Avenue during you know, those riots. And, you know, I've known Ray a really long time now. And he's one of the most happy, positive people I've ever met. And you could see the war-torn look on his face as we, he was telling his story. And it was just so authentic. And it, it hurt me, you know, uh, to see him so, so sad and reliving those memories. And, you know, I think for him, you know, not only that incident that happened to him in Detroit and all that stuff, but I think him just sitting in the house playing guitar for those 10,000 hours really honed his rhythm in and the rhythm of Detroit. And we were lucky enough to go to the, to, to Hitsville, to Motown and step on that hollow ground and just kind of uh, soak it all in. And uh, I think that really helps shape that, that part of the movie a lot, which I think the viewers will notice. Were there ever any moments like that, Ray, where maybe, did you, you weren't feeling like, oh, this will be really cathartic and I'm, I'm ready to go through this again. Or did you kind of, you know, look at it as like, oh, I know the film was going to be about me, but this kind of conjured up some things for me that I, I wasn't necessarily prepared to face uh, and that maybe kind of overwhelmed you a bit. Did you feel a little off sometimes uh, in the filming of it? Well, I got to tell you, all my relatives still live in Detroit, so I go there quite often. So for me, it was more of uh, making sure that Fran and the film crew didn't get killed <laughs> standing in the wrong spot <laughs> too long. I was really concerned about that. And he'll tell you, you know, it was so cold at the time we were in February, the actual camera battery froze up and we, we couldn't film for a while. And yeah. I think one time Fran wanted to go to the bathroom and I was like, you got to go back downtown to the hotel. You can't stop. There's nowhere for you to stop and use the bathroom. So there's so some trips like that. But I feel that's that sensitivity and that mem the memories and all that stuff. I feel it every time I go there. Yeah, and I th you know, and it's not something that at least in in some of the work that I think with your writing, you're very much like incredible at creating hooks. Right. Like mm -hmm. even whether it's songs that people might not necessarily know you had something to do with, like Mr. Telephone Man, which is just yeah. like, you know, you've got those guys are out on tour still and singing it as way grown men <laughs> with their own children. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like it's endearing at those times. But but yeah. you never really parlayed. It, it felt like for me, at least that kind of, you know, uh, trauma or that kind of issue or, uh, you know, kind of felt like you tried to work that through in the music. Did you feel like maybe sometimes you wanted to keep it positive and kind of be that person that writes the pop song that's going to alleviate that? Or was that even a consideration for you? Well, absolutely. I'm glad you noticed that because all of my music 
is, is never political. It's never too bluesy and down and unhappy and somebody broke somebody's heart. I like to make songs that make people smile. And, you know, for me, Detroit is my favorite city still because so many wonderful, so many crazy things happen there, but so many wonderful things happen in there as well. And it really shaped my life and shaped who I am. And so I just feel endearing to it. So I, I go there quite often. That was Fran Strine and, of course, the legend Ray Parker Jr., who has a much more storied career than I believe some of you out there even know. So check it out. Who are you going to call the documentary? You can find on YouTube. Uh, you can rent it uh, from Amazon Prime Video, Apple TV, all of these. You can rent for a minimal price. Uh, a fantastic documentary, especially if you love music docs, that's for sure. And let's get on the local tip a little bit more. Uh, one of our favorite interviewers and probably a, uh, one of the more prolific filmmakers in Edmonton is none other than Brandon Rhinus. We have talked to him several times about different projects and this year he had the big release of his film Grotesque. Uh, done so well for him in fact that he's even at work on a sequel to Grotesque. They had a fantastic premiere at the Metro Cinema earlier this year, but now you can watch Grotesque uh, on physical media. I know that they're selling some on their website, um, but also you can find it on Plex. That's right, uh, all you gotta do is find Plex on a streaming site, and it's free. That's right, it's free. And if you happen to live outside the borders of Canada, uh, you can see it through Amazon uh, very easily and rent it there. So here's a segment of our interview with Edmonton filmmaker Brandon Rhinus. Raise your hand if you want to die today. Too bad. You're going to die anyway. Let me help you with that. Whose arm is that? Really, that's your question? Oh. I'm on a roll, so I figure, why stop? You know, tonally, I kind of felt like, oh, this feels uh, like something, you know, like Frank Hawk, is it Hawken letter? Like almost kind of like, like uh, you know, like, uh, like basket case, that kind of feeling of like, okay, what you're watching here, it doesn't look very slick. It looks uh, indie and it looks a little raw, but it's also extremely tongue in cheek uh, to that point where if you kind of like those like 1980s, almost like if it's screened in a grand house theater uh, somewhere in the, and then, uh, you know, the middle of New York, I would be like this, this movie grotesque fits there. Is that kind of what you're shooting for? Like Jim Winsnerski kind of level of like, let's yeah. have fun and kind of like, tap into something from you know another era that's exactly what we were trying to do and quite frankly if we wanted to make it slicker uh, the budget would have just shot up and we had to work with what we had which means we had to work extremely quickly and we also just had problems with you know covid we had to postpone it so many times and actors getting sick and things falling through and you know hotbox was 11 days it just fell right according to schedule we got it done quick this one took about a year and a half of you know Oh, well, we ran out of time this summer, so we have to wait till the following spring to start up again. And, and just, you know, there was so many setbacks. So the fact that it even got finished at all was a miracle. It just, and it worked out for that. I knew going in that if this was a different movie, 
if it was a very serious movie, we couldn't film it like this. But I think the kind of people that like this kind of movie aren't going to want it super polished. They're not going to want a Hollywood version. They're going to want the raw grindhouse version. It's kind of like, you know, why people like the early look is better than the super polished, expensive look. And I think the movie would, our movie would suffer if it looked like we had a ton of time and unlimited money. So we worked with what we have. And I think people are just going to appreciate just the, the talent that went into it. And they're going to kind of see what we're going for. And it just has that charm to it that a lot of Hollywood movies can't, right? It's like they have no soul. Whereas grotesque, you watch it and it's like, yeah, it's violent, but it's got a heart to it, right? It's, I think, even, I mean, I made it, so it might be biased, but I just like throwing it on when I'm watching it as I'm working on it. It's like, I like watching this. It's, it's like, it's easy on the eyes. It's easy to watch. It's fun. There's no boring parts. It kind of just flies and I, that's exactly what we were going for so yeah i think definitely i love that kind of movie myself and i'm hoping that the people to watch this love that kind of movie too brandon you know you talked a little bit there and kind of alluded to like maybe the heart and the soul of the movie for i mean for me obviously you look at it is that it, it doesn't come down to a slasher film because that character of mildred uh becomes i think the heart and soul of that film right he's played by elizabeth chamberlain but you also have on there too this kind of almost polar opposite and uh, cartoonishly bitchy character that Julie Whalen, your partner in crime on many different projects, who plays the character of Blanche, are kind of the core uh, two characters at the heart of Grotesque, uh, even though I will say that uh, Mildred is quite prolific in her killing, that's for sure. Uh, talk to us a little bit about what each actor brings to this project and maybe how it gives it that heart. Yeah, Julie is like, absolutely amazing in everything she does in particular this actually without her this movie would not exist because we were actually in pre-production on a different film when I finished this script I let her read it she's like oh my god like we have to do this movie instead and I was like for real so we just abandoned the other movie started work on this and they got made and I knew right from the beginning um Julie would be perfect for this part which is funny because in Hotbox she played the uber religious girl who is like so sweet and they're like ridiculously sweet. So this is the exact opposite. Now she's just like over the top. You know, even her, her coffee mug says number one bitch, you know, and her license plate, like it's exactly what she is. Um, and it just, I think she's going to be like a, a fan favorite for the movie and people are going to basically be waiting an hour and a half to see her get her comeuppance um, in the film. Yeah, she brought a lot to it. Elizabeth brought a lot to it. Um, every actor in there, just the little, just the little nuances that they kind of bring to it. It's just great that we have that much talent in Edmonton that we can bring it together. I mean, we have like, what, 60, 70 people, uh, like actors in this film. There's so many different roles and, and all of them, they're just kind of perfect. And it's great that we just have the resources and the talent in Edmonton to like bring all these people into a movie and they all bring their little bit of talent and that like, and this is what we get out of it. So yeah, Julie, like a standout character. I think there's so many standout characters in it that um, that are going to be memorable for, you know, for years to come, I think, when people watch it. That was Edmonton-born director Brandon Rias talking to us about his feature film, Grotesque. You can find it for free on Plex. Uh, if you want to know how to find that, you just look up uh, Grotesque on social media and there'll be links on their social media and uh if you're outside the borders of canada you can find it on amazon uh, prime another interview that was fantastic this year was with uh writer 
uh, writer not just of film documentaries more specifically, but also a writer in general of novels and articles. Omar Maloualam is the man behind The Last Baron. You might have seen the short film, it's about an hour long though, uh, called The Last Baron on CBC Gem Shorts. Uh, but you could also see this film being an expanded form. That's right, The Last Baron, if you saw it, is now being turned into a feature film length documentary. So they're gonna tag on some more stuff they've been filming throughout the year, and it will be called The Lebanese Burger Mafia. If you did check out The Last Baron, it's a feature about Burger Baron, a renegade fast food chain with mysterious origins, a cult following, and a secret pathway to the immigrant dream. So here's the segment of my interview with Omar Malouelam about The Last Baron at that point in time, but now will be transformed into the full-length feature documentary, The Lebanese Burger Mafia. It's one of the most recognizable and beloved brands in Alberta, with over 25 completely independent locations. Then if you go to other burger brands, each one is different. They don't follow rules. There is no actual system. Everybody's kind of doing their own thing with Burger Baron. They didn't seem to have anything in common, except for one thing. Every single one was owned by Lebanese immigrants like my parents. So that's the problem with the Lebanese mentality. They cannot accept one person in charge. It's against their genes. How did the Burger Baron go from fast food franchise to fast food meme? Nobody really knows who the owner is. One of the Lebanese people came, took it, and made it the company that it is. I've heard different stories about they've started it. It's just an out-and-out lie, and I don't like it. My dad started that, period. Talk to us a little bit about how a project like The Last Baron evolves, and maybe just give uh, anybody that isn't aware of that project either a little peek inside what it's about. Sure. So The Last Baron is um, the story of the Burger Baron franchise, which is not really a franchise. People think it is because they see it all over Alberta and they've maybe seen a handful of them that had similar logos. But if you look a little closer, you'll see they're all a little bit different. It is actually better described as a meme, I think, than a franchise. So that's one side of it. But even the people who are astute and have noticed that the Burger Baron is more of a meme, Many of them don't know that all the owners are loosely connected Lebanese immigrants. And so, you know, the question is, how did that happen? Right. And this is something that I was mildly aware of as a kid. You know, my parents owned the Burger Baron in High Prairie. And I had a relative who owned a Burger Baron in Wabasca. And every once in a while, we'd go on a hockey trip to these small Alberta towns and if my dad was driving, he would always just go to the Burger Baron. And um, he, there would be a Lebanese person running it. And he may know him, he, they may not. But automatically there was this kinship. And I was like, why are all these Burger Barons Lebanese? Um, and I don't know, I, I, I didn't give it too much thought. But then when I moved to Edmonton and I saw that even like the big city Burger Barons were all owned by Lebanese people... That's when it, it was like, okay, this is, this is a conspiracy. What's going on here? This movie is about that. It also, I mean, it, 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 like digging in the dirt, it also came out of an article that I'd written. 
but it was an article that I written quite a while ago in 2013 for Swerve magazine called Will the Real Burger Baron Please Stand Up? And that was a investigation, a uh, genuine investigation into the origins of the Burger Baron and who the originator of it was. And so, you know, this story had always not just stuck with me, but it resonated with a lot of people. I mean, till, you know, till this for years and years, people would bring that up with me. Right. I just it was I could tell that it really connected with them, really resonated with them. It wasn't just the quirkiness of it and the, you know, the the sort of hyper localness of it. But I think it's the tenderness of an immigrant story, you know, told through hamburgers. And so after digging in the dirt, Dylan, you know, maybe a year later, approached me and was like, we have an opportunity to pitch CBC again. I want to hear from you, like, what stories do you want to tell? Like, I'll be producer. Um, we'll produce this together, but, you know, I want you to have a, a chance to direct your own movie, um, which is only something a true friend would would do, right? I mean, that, like, yeah. I, I mean, I was just so touched by that invitation. And so, you know, I pitched pitched a few to Dylan first, and we talked about, like, what what would work, what would not I actually think this might have been two years ago now that I think of it. And then it was a year later that we actually finally decided like, okay, let's do this. We've wasted enough time. It's, it's COVID. Let's, let's get moving. Um, and yeah, we put together the pitch for The Last Baron. And I mean, rest is history, I guess. That was Omar Maloelam talking about his documentary, The Last Baron. You can check it out for free on CBC Gem as you wait patiently for the full-length documentary to come out about the Lebanese burger mafia. Here's another fantastic interview we had from this year. This was from one of the filmmakers featured as part of the Edmonton International Film Festival. Scott Lebrecht brought a fantastic documentary called Jurassic Punk, and it's all about Steve Williams. A pioneer in computer animation, his digital dinosaurs of Jurassic Park transformed Hollywood in 1993. But an appetite for anarchy and a reckless disregard for authority may have cost him the recognition he deserved. Here's a segment of my conversation with Scott Lebrecht, director of Jurassic Punk. I don't know that anybody else could have modeled those dinosaurs. I don't know that anybody else could have set the standards for animating them. I don't know that we would have even tried. Here's somebody that was fundamental at that time in the progress of this disruptive technology. Steve Williams, otherwise known as Spaz Williams, worked in a tiny windowless room that was called The Pit. Lucasfilm's Industrial Light and Magic. This was where Spaz and his cohorts created breakthrough animation. He happened to be the right guy at the right time, at the right place. Before Steve, this stuff couldn't have been done. It was not biotechnology. How did you approach capturing this true essence of him? Because, I mean, his background story kind of does it for you. But it's it's not just enough for you to be like, oh, here's some old footage of him. Here's some interview talking head stuff of the other people. How did you find the capture the essence of him in Jurassic Punk? He and I have a have a, a really close relationship. And we, you know, you know, at first when we were shooting, it was just ridiculously fun to just go and put the camera on him and let him, you know, tell his story. And so it was it was just 
it was just so fun to go visit him and with the camera and just film him being himself and talking the way he talks about his life and, and everything that he's experienced. And, uh, and I think that that is the, that, and, and then it became work and it became uh, emotional for him because uh, I kept asking him deeper and deeper questions to try and understand more and help the audience understand more. And for myself to understand more, uh, even as his friend about, you know, say uh, the, the, the feel, what it feels like to be him and what it feels like, to have done the things he's done. I was always uh, kind of fascinated with the idea of, um, you know, I'm 50 now and, and 51. And the idea of uh, life sort of, everyone's life sort of having a kind of a bell curve to it. And there's the top of the curve. And and what do you do with the rest of your life after the, you hit the top of that curve? And when you're talking about somebody like Steve Williams, who's who who, you know, was a part of a time that literally only happens maybe once every hundred years. Uh, it, 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 and to then know that like you have the rest of your life to live looking back at that, that moment that the whole world changed. Um, what do you, how do you live with that? How do you like live out the rest of your life and find new challenges and do new things? And so I think it's something that's, an incredibly difficult thing for us, you know, say quote unquote normal people to relate to because you just, so few people have that experience of being at a time and a place like that. Uh, and so I feel like there is a thing about looking back at the past and looking back uh, for a long portion of your life and just kind of thinking about uh, this time when uh, you were at the top of your game and how, um, you know what are the challenges in that and um and how do you how do you keep going so yeah i think the film explores a lot of those kinds of things i found what was kind of interesting here is like i love all the the background on steve because he was somebody who i kind of knew of but only from the point where he started really kind of making films that were having an impact right so all that background about like honestly i was ignorant to the fact that he was from canada <laughs> Yeah. And I'm like, I'm like, I knew Cameron was. Yeah. Uh, but I'm, I'm like, but it seemed like another one of those people where I'm just like, oh, maybe he just didn't seem like that. I mean, he he almost seems like he was born to be that kind of like, you know, American cowboy, but he just loves the Maple Leafs, I guess, a lot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. No, like, he's, he's a Toronto. He's, yeah. he's in Toronto. Yeah. Like, I love all those reveals. And another thing that I think people might be surprised to hear about, too, is that there's this, at the time of The Abyss, T2, and particularly with Jurassic Park, there's a real push-pull um, between practical and digital, and this being kind of at the core of the cinematic revolution at the time. And I guess what was kind of disappointing is when you hear about how people were just very uh, hesitant to make that change, to really truly embrace that change on the level they needed to. And the fact that Steve was the core central figure of pushing the boundaries of that. Um, did it take some effort to kind of get people to reflect on that time, honestly, who were kind of more uh, connected to the practical world and weren't really accustomed or ready to ride that digital revolution? Um, or did you feel like they were ready to talk you know, 25, 30 years later. 
Uh, I think everyone I interviewed is incredibly humble people and they're just, they're, they're very much just telling it like it is and how, how, what happened when it happened. And uh, they're, they're, they're not afraid to admit that, you know, uh, uh, we didn't think it could work. And then, and then it ended up working and everything changed and I had to adapt and all that stuff. And so, so um, I think that uh, when, when, uh, when I would ask the questions about what it was like to see, for them to be seeing the compu a computer being used to create the images that it was creating back then, almost all the time I just get explanations of, of wonder, being stunned, being shocked. Uh, and I think the reason why is because when you look at the late 80s computer graphics that were happening, they were just, they just weren't, they, they were, they just weren't realistic looking yet. And, and no one was, there wasn't a, con, a convergence of people and tools yet to really, and, and then a project that would actually call for it and have the the financial backing for it and then a place like ILM that would have the financial backing and the 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 um the desire to take the risks that were being taken back then uh so it was a it was a really special time of everything kind of it was kind of a perfect storm of people and uh tools well, dear listeners, that wraps up our special look back at 2022, the year in moving radio. So much cinema. Um, we just scratched the surface here with all these interviews. If you want to find out more of what myself and the other correspondents of Moving Radio have been covering, there are several different ways to check us out. You can find us at the CJSR SoundCloud account. Uh, you can also find me, Christian Zip, on Facebook, or you can find us on Twitter, at Moving Radio, and you can also find me on Instagram, at Moving Radio 2. But basically, if you want any back interviews, uh, stuff that we've done previously even in years before you can find moving radio on apple podcasts you can find us on spotify you can find us on pretty much any major audio streaming service so we look forward to 2023 and covering even more local canadian and independent cinema for you the dear listeners of cjsr all the best to you and your family happy holidays and uh, we'll see you in 2023